0: Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and places like that. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello, hello. And indeed of Slate. You've been doing a whole bunch of Slatey stuff recently, not just Slate Money.
1: You can listen to me on Slate What Next TBD this week.
0: We have a whole institutional bent this week, we're going to talk about the institution of philanthropy and whether it's all just one big tax dodge. We're going to talk about private equity as institutional ownership of hospitals and what that means. We're going to talk about infrastructure investment and the degree to which government should be involved in that. We have a Slate Plus segment on the one big risk that the world and America faces in 2024. It's all coming up on Slate money. So let's start off with mega charitable donations. Every year, the Chronicle of Philanthropy puts out a list of the biggest charitable donations of the year. And this year, the list is dominated by people you might have heard of. Warren Buffett is at the top. There's also Phil Knight, the guy who founded Nike. There's Jim Simons of Rentech. There's some guy called Ross Brown, who I hadn't heard of. He founded Cryogenic Industries. He's pledged $400 million to Caltech. Anyway, the big picture here is that the recipients, and this is not entirely unusual, fall into two camps. One is universities, and the other is sort of social charities. Warren Buffett gave his half a billion dollar donation not to the Gates Foundation, where everyone knows that he has a long-standing relationship, but rather to the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation. That's his first wife who died in 2004. He gave them $540 million of Berkshire stock. And the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation is... Women's healthcare.
1: I was going to, I'm wondering, what does it mean that he donated shares to his foundation as opposed to, you know, actual cash? Like, does that mean he doesn't sell the shares and doesn't have to pay any capital gains tax?
0: Exactly. Yes, that that's exactly what it means. If you donate shares, then you just like transfer the shares directly from your brokerage account i guess to the foundation mm-hmm. um that's not a taxable event that's not considered the sale and then when the charitable foundation sells the chairs which it does immediately that is a taxable event in theory but because it's a charity who's doing the selling and not a taxable individual the charity doesn't pay tax that's the whole point of charities is there tax-exempt.
1: And does Buffett also get a tax deduction for making the donation itself?
0: Yeah, kind of, not really. Not really. He doesn't get a deduction. If he does get a deduction, it's tiny compared to the, the size of the donation. But the big thing is that he avoids like all of that wealth that has been created in terms of the value of the shares over the decades will wind up never being taxed.
1: That's an incredible tax dodge. I mean, I don't want to malign... Warren, because we know he's he's cognizant of of his tax privilege, right? He wrote that opinion column for the Times many years ago. You, everyone remembers, right? Where he was like, "I pay less taxes than my secretary." Blah 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 blah. But he, donating shares to his foundation—I mean, that that's he's avoiding millions in taxes.
0: Absolutely, and this is something that entrepreneurs in general just do as a matter of course, and that you know even individuals do you know um it is always better if you own appreciated stock even if it's just 5 shares of apple that you bought a few years ago it is always better to donate that stock to charity than it is to sell the stock and then Take the proceeds and give the proceeds to charity that's just like a weird quirk of the us tax code that everyone kind of understands and I don't even know if it's considered to be a loophole or more or, or not given how sort of central it is to how these things work but it does mean that people who make money by investing or by owning shares in one way or another do have a way of basically ensuring that none of that none of those profits Get taxed if they get donated.
2: Well, another factor here is that you know these tax structures are really designed to facilitate large amounts of money going to charities, but they're used so often by the extraordinarily wealthy as asset protection. That a lot of times the the money never ends up in the or you know it takes a very long time to end up in the hands of an actual charity that can do something with it. And a lot of the money goes to things like donor advised funds, which take even longer to get money to in charities.
0: I think that's false, actually. All of the statistics I've seen show that the average payout rate on donor-advised funds is somewhere north of 20%, while the payout rate on traditional foundations is much closer to 5%.
2: Well, no, the max or the minimum payout rate for foundations is 5%. Donor-advised funds don't have minimum payouts.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. Donor-advised funds do not have a minimum payout. I'm just saying that Like In theory, you're right, that money can just stay in a donor-advised fund forever, but I don't quite understand what the point of doing that would be. In practice, empirically speaking, I think it's wrong to say that it takes longer for the money to be spent. I think in practice, donor-advised funds tend to spend their money more aggressively than foundations do.
1: So that's the other part of this, right? Someone like Buffett and some of the others on the top 10 list, they're donating money to foundations or sometimes donor-advised funds.
0: We don't need to get into the minutiae of the difference between DAFs and foundations. But, like, you can notice that the other donations on this list to, like, Jim Simons giving to SUNY or that other guy giving to Caltech, you know, are also effectively doing the same thing, right? There are foundations, there are desks, and then there are endowments. And all of them serve as pools of charitable capital that are not designed to be spent immediately, but rather as like pools that get invested in the market in one way or another, and then trickle out their earnings, you know, at 5% a year or 10% a year or whatever the, the payout rate is, more or less in perpetuity. And longstanding listeners of Slate Money will know that I am a foe of perpetuities. I think perpetuities are terrible things. And so, in general, I'm not a fan of foundations or endowments or DAFs. I think that, you know, if you want to give money to charities, you should give money to charities. That said, on some level, a charitable organization, it's good for charities to have some kind of balance sheet, right? You don't want charities just sitting there with. $10 in their checking account, waiting for the money to come in so that they can immediately spend it. You have to. So, on some level, it makes sense for some money to just kind of sit there. But the level at which the money sits winds up getting sort of abstracted higher and higher. And I don't think that's helpful.
2: Well, it's also good for charities to give insanely rich people selfish incentives to donate. And and that sort of makes me think about restricted gifts to universities, which can be structured so in such a Byzantine fashion that really they, they just sort of served as, a, again, tax strategy for the billionaire. I'm thinking specifically about the gift that Bill Ackman gave to Harvard a while back and that he's very angry because I guess Harvard violated some of the ways that he wanted to structure it. He donated some shares in a company that he had invested in. And he put some restrictions around it where if the stock went up, Harvard had to do something specific with it. And, and you know, that sort of also, I think, violates the intent of charitable giving, at least in the, in the way that, you know, I think we're talking about it.
0: So, so, Elizabeth, you said a couple of things there, which I want to sort of drill down on a bit. You keep on using this term tax strategy, and I'm not quite sure what you mean by it. Do you just mean what we've already covered, which is that if you donate stock to a nonprofit, whether it's a university or a foundation or an endowment, then you don't pay capital gains when you sell that stock or do you mean something different?
2: Well, it's yeah, you know, uh, nonprofit structures are used in a variety of ways to protect assets. not just when you donate stock, it's the kind of tax benefits that you get whenever you donate to different types of foundations uh, to different types of charities because, the tax code around charitable giving is more complicated when you are talking about complex structures like family foundations that are linked to other foundations, or you know, foundation gifts to donor advised funds. There, there are a lot of ways to kind of move money around and, and have it be beneficial tax wise that don't necessarily result in, in money going to charities.
0: See, I'm not. I, I think I'm going to take the other side of this one which is that, like, yeah, you can move money around. You can move money from one DAF to another, from one foundation to a DAF, from a DAF to a foundation. It doesn't ultimately get spent necessarily immediately. You, know, you can move it from an endowment. But it's a, once it's in that kind of charitable realm, the only thing that can ultimately happen to it after it's been moved around to, a seven, to seven different places is that it gets spent on some kind of charitable purpose. Once it's in that charitable realm moving it around has no tax benefit to the original donor even if they control what the vehicle is that it's in they don't get any extra benefit at that point
2: I mean if they control more than <laughs> if they control multiple charitable organizations they do if they have multiple foundations that are linked to them well for example you know look at Warren Susan Buffett Foundation is not the only buffett linked foundation that Buffett is putting money into. Right. And sometimes you can use payout requirements to have one foundation pay the other as a grant. Mm-hmm. And then you meet the payout requirements of the foundation. You know, there are lots of ways to move money
1: between entities. So you're not donating any money to charity or just donating from
2: Yeah. And then those things are basically just housing money, you know, and, and to Felix's point, ostensibly for a longer term purpose. But if you're the person who's doing that, you know, primarily for tax strategy reasons, uh, you know, is it justifiable to call you a great philanthropist?
0: And this is the bit which I'm struggling to understand is when you, you, you talk about tax strategy and primarily for tax strategy, like for me, the way I see it, once it's donated into the sort of charity verse, you can move it around and move it back and forth and, you know, get your minimum payout requirements by giving it to a DAF, and that's not a genuine donation. And I totally understand that whole thing. I can understand the whole idea that, in principle, someone who doesn't want to spend their charitable balance sheet can get away with all manner of clever ways of not spending their cha- charitable balance sheet. I just don't understand what the point of that would be, and I don't understand what the, what the, ta- what the tax benefit would be of doing that.
2: My my counterpoint is it's not just tax benefit. Look at the Trump Foundation, that you know got in trouble because they weren't actually doing really very much charitable work at all, if any. Yeah, and they were using foundation money to buy you know a big expensive portrait of Donald Trump. Sure, that's the kind of thing that you know when you spin up a family foundation that doesn't
1: have proper governance, you can get away with doing.
0: Sure. Yeah, there are bad foundations, totally.
1: And I think one thing that's sort of notable is how much money people are donating to these foundations and these DAFs instead of straight to charity, which, as Felix was saying earlier, would be better. Um, Like, there was one report we read in the prep, 41 cents of every individual donation in 2022 went to either one of these private foundations or these donor-advised funds. And that's a, a share that's been increasing. Uh up from twenty two percent in twenty twenty one actually, so it's like b- this money that is being celebrated as going to charity is going into these private foundations where we may or may not know what's happening with the money and where it's going and which may or may not be spending all the money.
0: Oh, we know they all have to file they all have to file reports showing where they give their money,
1: okay, but then a lot of that money isn't getting spent, it's just sitting around, and it's definitely giving these richer people, um, big uh, tax breaks and allowing them like in the Bill Ackman case or um, Jim Simon, who donated a big chunk of money to SUNY Stony Brook gives them a lot of influence and power. So it seems like not the best system.
0: I agree with the second, but not with the first. It it does give influence and power 100 percent. And donors have a huge amount of influence at any number of charitable organizations, whether they're museums or universities or whoever, right? I'm not sure about the tax break side. Like, I I totally understand this from a public FISC point of view. Like, I don't believe in the charitable tax deduction. I don't think it should exist. I think that if you want to give money to charity, you sell your stock, you pay your taxes on the stock, and then you can give the money to the charity, and that's fine. And I think that as we discussed about Warren Buffett, the federal government is losing out in terms of not being able to make any tax revenue on all of the money that Warren Buffett has made over his lifetime. That's bad for the federal government. I don't think that Buffett himself gets any benefit from this, right? And and that the alternative is that he doesn't sell the stock, right? And if you don't sell the stock, there's no tax payable. You can do. He's going to do one of two things. He's either just going to sit on the stock and not sell it, which is not paying any tax, or he's going to donate the stock to a charity, which is not paying any tax. I don't see any tax benefit from giving it to charity.
1: The other thing, other point I thought worth mentioning in a discussion about this is how philanthropy has become, the Institute for Policy Studies calls it top heavy in that it is my understanding that Fewer and fewer Americans are giving to charity now.
0: It's really hard to tell, especially since the Trump tax reforms meant that many fewer Americans itemized their taxes it 's hard to tell how many people are giving to charity, and it 's hard to get a reliable time series for that, but anecdotally, it does seem to be the case that charitable giving is becoming more concentrated among the ultra rich and it 's becoming less common among you know ordinary Americans, with the single exception of churches right Americans still give to their church or they tithe or you know that part of giving seems to be pretty steady. Um, but one of the things that happens when you see headlines about Mackenzie Scott just gave a billion dollars to my favorite charity is like, well, what's the point in me giving $10 to that charity at this point when they just have a, they just received a billion dollars from Mackenzie Scott. Mm. Like when the numbers get this big, there is this feeling of like, why, why even bother? Why, how can I even compete with that?
1: Felix, why are you so interested in philanthropy?
0: I think it's because philanthropies themselves are this really interesting locus of completely unaccountable power. You know, we have all manner of checks and balances in our democratic system, but the checks and balances on foundations and, for that matter, DAFs and and big donors when they're wearing their philanthropist hats are almost non-existent. Um, And the power they wield is substantial. You know, there's been multiple books. We have another one coming out this year about the Gates Foundation and how powerful it is. And it's answerable to no one. And that really fascinates me. That said, like, there are things that these entities do that government doesn't do. And there is a pretty strong case that the Gates Foundation has managed to improve the world in ways that governments wouldn't have been able to do on their own.
1: Also, I just want to shout out to the donation to SUNY Stony Brook, because as a SUNY alumni, I'm glad that people are donating to SUNY, because unlike Harvard or Yale, they could use the money.
0: (laughs) Quick break, and we'll be straight back.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2%, on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery. Wondery which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more Wondery Means Business. Emily, I feel like there's a segue here. I was just talking about the way in which charitable donations should sort of fill in the gaps doing things the government can't do or maybe isn't what needs to be persuaded to do. The flip side of that is, What happens when the government starts spending money in ways that are traditionally the domain of the private sector and specifically like investing in, well, you give me the numbers.
1: So there is a boom right now in America spending on the construction of new factories. And just like Felix said, the boom stems from public spending, specifically the Biden administration signature legislation, the CHIPS Act the bipartisan infrastructure law, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a confusing name for what it is. The most recent data we have from the census shows that we're spending almost $210 billion a year building factories now. And I mean, if you could look at this chart, it's just like a spike after about 2021, a spike, huge spike up and to the right of spending. We're spending on factories at triple the rate we were a decade ago specifically because of the money in these laws so we're talking about new um chip fabrication plants plants that make uh, solar cells um just all kinds of different f- factories and facilities has spurred just a real boom um my colleague Neil Irwin called it um the start of a manufacturing super cycle there's just so much money coming from the government from this from these bills and um, going into building factories right now. And things are just getting started. So we're not seeing like a surge in manufacturing employment yet, because one of the reasons um, behind this legislation is to sort of drive a manufacturing resurgence in the United States, which is sort of interesting. And we can talk about it because it, it kind of started with Trump, the Trump administration talking about manufacturing jobs and getting people working in 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 factories and making like good money again
0: infrastructure week an
1: infrastructure week but like biden actually made this kind of all happen but i think it's it's a trend that everyone kind of likes this idea of like we'll make more stuff in the u.s now
0: okay so let me just stop you there and ask you you know on the one hand this is good that we're making more stuff in the u.s it's definitely good for the u.s it looks like it's going to be good for the u.s on the other hand this is as you say investing money in factories. This is a classic example of something the private sector that, that something that naturally belongs in the private sector. People invest money in factories, the factories make stuff, you make profits. You know, this is a for-profit kind of activity most of the time. The fact that it really wasn't happening to anywhere near current levels before, you know, big government spending got involved implies one of two things. One is that there was a market failure before. And that even though we had zero interest rates and all the rest of it, somehow the markets were just too dumb to invest in factories. The other is that a bunch of this money is being wasted. And, you know, the reason the markets weren't doing it is because it's not actually a particularly smart investment.
2: Well, I think there, there are exceptions to that, though. I mean, look at the CHIPS Act. You know, A lot of chip manufacturing has moved offshore over the last few decades because it does make economic sense to do that, but it works against a lot of national interests, security interests, et cetera, for that to entirely be concentrated abroad. And so the government does have an incentive to come in and subsidize chip manufacturing here, and the private sector also... Has you know benefits from that?
1: Yeah, I would say, Felix, that governments invest in factories and manufacturing, uh, not all the time, but it's certainly not unprecedented. I mean, look what happened in World War II, right? We ramped up um, making weapons, and that was great for the economy long term, and gave and, and the factories turn from. do they say they turn from making um ammo to making toasters or whatever you know
0: swords into plowshares
1: yeah and that's great for the economy and i mean i think governments around the world invest in infrastructure like factories and manufacturing plants and create market incentives for the private sector to you know do things they wouldn't do without those incentives that's like I, i guess if you're like a free market purist you're horrified by this but Actually, that's how um, a lot of big economies have operated for a long, long, long time.
0: It is. You're you're absolutely right that this has happened since time immemorial. The other thing that is very important is that governments can solve collective action problems. To Elizabeth's point, you know, one of the reasons that all of the chip manufacturing is in Taiwan is that all of the chip manufacturing is Taiwan. There are kind of Economies of scale and and um, winner-takes-all dynamics at play.
1: And to pause you for a second, the reason it's all in Taiwan is because the Taiwanese government spent a ton of money making sure it was all in Taiwan. They built right. factories and invested in the sector with just a ton of cash.
0: Right. and then And then if you are a would-be chip manufacturer thinking, should I build a plant in the U.S.? There are no economies of scale. You're not big Mm -hmm. enough to, to be a winner takes all. So you don't do it. But if the US government comes in and says, we're going to put a shit ton of money in to try and make the US like definitely top two, if not top one in terms of chip manufacturing, then at that point, you have the confidence that there's going to be this, um, broader sort of national infrastructure that might make everything more profitable. So they can change the government can change. Big picture dynamics in theory, in a way that an individual private sector player can 't in practice, everyone and their mother has tried to become you know a high tech center in some industry or or other and there's been a huge amount of government attempts to do that, and for every successful attempt to do like to do that like we saw in taiwan um there have been half a dozen or a dozen unsuccessful attempts to do that. Um, You know, do you remember when France decided it was going to be a global center of, like, the search industry? (laughs) Um, You know, internet search. So government trying to sort of push uh, an industrial agenda normally fails. Sometimes it succeeds, and everyone, you know, looking at this chart of going up and to the right, everyone seems to be pretty hopeful right now that it's going to succeed in the United States. But the track record is not that great.
1: Yeah, I think this the scale of spending is so huge. And I mean, America is not France or Brazil. Like we are a big <laughs> badass economy. Like if we <laughs> we're talking about over a trillion dollars that we're spending on all this stuff, clean energy, chips, um infrastructure. I mean, it's it's just so much money. Um, and and that line on the chart is so spiky, I find it hard to believe that ultimately there'll be big, there won't be big economic payoffs. Um and and one one of the headwinds that I guess you could worry about is build all the factories and there's just not enough people to work in them. That is something that certainly could happen. Um the labor market is really tight and there are already concerns. I think I saw one, one factory had to like halt construction because there weren't even enough they couldn't find enough people to construction workers to hire. So that's kind of a concern.
0: Yeah. And and the construction workers are the easy bit compared to the, you know, chip manufacturing workers. Yeah.
1: So that'll be interesting to see um how that how that kind of plays out. And then the third element, which I was sort of curious what Elizabeth would make of it, is um sort of like the political payoff for for Biden here. Like so much money is being spent and you know, Things are getting built that hadn't, like, there was some story we read where a bridge, was it in Ohio, was getting built that politicians have been trying to rebuild for, like, 40 years or something. But no one gives him any credit for any of this. Like, politically, it seems like a real achievement to be able to spend this much money, invest this much money in manufacturing. But, like, there's no electoral payoff. No one no one seems to care.
2: I think part of it is that people are not really cognizant of when manufacturing is going up until these companies start hiring locally, and that's when they really see it. So Mm -hmm. if Biden gets reelected in the next term, you might see some of that start to happen. Uh, But for, I think, seriously red states, even though it's benefiting them, what invariably happens, or at least this happens in my home state, is that You'll have Republican congressmen who vote against an infrastructure proposal, but whenever the state benefits, they take credit for it. Mm-hmm. And no one really knows the difference because it's not the kind of thing that a voter does homework on mostly. So even even though you know, Biden's proposals are benefiting uh, Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia, locally, you'll see Tommy Tuberville take credit for it. And I'm not sure that most voters are really going to
1: do the homework to... Find out whether that's true, right. There was this example of a solar cell plant in Georgia. It existed before this legislation, but after Inflation Reduction Act was passed, there was more incentives for this company to expand the plant. I think it's called Q cells or something. Um, so they did like a major expansion, hired a lot more people at even higher wages and Marjorie Taylor Green, who's like this you know Republican congresswoman, she was like, "Trump did this. <laughs> <laughs> basically, when she visited.
0: Thanks, Donald. Just imagine how much wonderful green energy we'll have if he gets (laughs) reelected. There's something to look forward to. We have to take a break, but we'll be back after
2: this. So there was a study recently that compared hospitals that had been taken over by private equity companies with a control group of similar hospitals that hadn't, and it found that in hospital adverse incidences had gone up significantly in hospitals that had been taken over by private equity afterwards, and that's things like slips and falls and in hospital infections, stuff like that.
0: And there's there's these things called central line infections. Is that right? Yes. Which I th- which I found particularly fascinating. That they're things that should never happen if you're just like
2: there, there's a category called a foreign body post-surgery that i find particularly terrifying or something just gets left in your body during surgery
0: but these, these these center line infections should never happen they statistically do what happens in the hospitals that get taken over by private equity is that the number of like center line insertions and i'm really butchering the um medical terminology here so forgive me but basically the denominator goes down the the number of procedures they do where this is even possible to happen goes down but the number of cases still manages to go up because the ones they do do they just do so much worse and it's really worrying and you know this is a very dry academic paper and the way they structured it it's basically you can't do a randomized controlled trial so it's um it's impossible to prove causality, but it very much looks like it, this is a particular type of private sector ownership that is worse for patient outcomes than the other types of private ownership um, Most hospitals in America are privately owned, and it's not that private ownership in you know in and of itself is bad, but it does look as though. When private equity in particular takes over a hospital, one of the first things they do is cut costs. And one of the first consequences of that cost cutting is avoidable medical bad things.
2: Uh, Particularly uh, reduced staffing. To to your point, the paper authors can't point to any kind of causality, but they do suggest that that plays a role in, in a lot of these things.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is just another aspect of like a bigger issue with the American healthcare system, which I think is that private ownership of the, of hospitals and running the healthcare industry as a for-profit industry is problematic. And like private equity is sort of, it's for-profit on steroids, essentially. Um, so I think that's part of why you would see study results like this.
0: So so there are there are so many different like axes we can talk about. One is for profit versus non-profit. One is public versus private, right? Obviously they're kind of orthogonal to each other. And then within for profit, you have like standard plain vanilla non-profit versus private equity highly leveraged for profit. And Hospitals fall into all of these different bucket, buckets, and it is weird to me, like, you know, as a as an immigrant, as a foreigner, I, I look at all of this crazy patchwork mess of different types of ownership and payment mechanisms and the sheer amount of money getting spent on absolutely everything, and I'm like, this is crazy, but it does... I think you've put your finger on something, which is that within that entire patchwork, this one like extreme corner of it, which is not just private and not just for profit, but private and for profit and leveraged and in particular being private equity mm-hmm. seems to be like just sort of, you know, in the medical term, contraindicated in terms of health outcomes.
1: And private equities, um, private equity firms have been the Times says gobbling up doctor practices, also physician practices around the country as well. Um, so they're getting even more into healthcare, which I think is really worrying. I like private
2: equity has also kind of decimated the media industry, and I'm trying to think of it. what's an industry that private equity has actually improved.
0: Well, now I feel like we're relitigating the, you know, Mitt Romney presidential election campaign. (laughs) I (laughs) I really don't want to go there. But yeah, no, I mean, in general, like my feeling about private equity is that it's good at managing decline. You know, if you want, if you have an industry that is going to go to zero slowly, the public markets are really bad at sort of putting a valuation on that and being able to run it efficiently, whereas private equity companies are quite good at working out how much money they can make from it before it inevitably dies. But that's not what you want a hospital to do.
1: No, (laughs) that's definitely not.
2: (laughs) I think private equity companies have a justifiable sometimes reputation for cost cutting in areas where there really is waste. But, you know, if you look at our healthcare system, a lot of the bulk of costs are really administrative and tied up in bureaucracy. And that's not what they're fixing. You know, when you see them reducing staffers in terms of headcounts, particularly nurses, that that points to the outcomes that you're looking at in the study pretty directly, I think.
0: I I, I don't think there's any evidence that they're, you know, not touching the administrative overhead. I'm sure they are touching the administrative overhead.
1: They're also increasing costs. I'm looking at this other other study, and when um, a firm can, you know, a private equity firm starts controlling more than 30% of a market in any given specialty, the costs in those specialties start rising too, which is great for the private equity firm and for its bottom line, of course. That's its goal, but it's not great for anyone else.
0: One of the things that we're, I'm going to come back to is this whole question of like medical costs in general are ludicrously high in this country. And yeah, I think that's that's why private equity has got dollar signs in its eyes. You know, it looks at hospitals and goes, well, hospitals are where the medical goes on. And medical is one of those things that you can just charge whatever you want and you get shit tons of money. So let's get in there. But yeah, again, it's one of those areas where there don't seem to be a lot of checks and balances. Like who's in charge of making sure that a hospital's health outcomes are up to par. Who's the agency that can step in and say, oi, private equity owner, you're doing it badly, you need to fix it, or you're going to be forced to lose the hospital?
1: It's the agency that oversees Medicare. They have a lot of influence and, and set a lot of regulations for hospitals because they're spending so much money in them, right? Private equity is private and for profit, but they're getting a lot of money from Public health insurance.
0: I, I feel. I feel like the the level of accountability and oversight is. Let's just say the suggestion of this particular paper would suggest that like it's insufficient. But yeah, I have a number for the numbers round, so I'm going to jump right in with this one because it is uh, again a perfect segue. My number is ninety eight point five billion dollars. And that is the estimated amount that the federal government can save if it just imports pharmaceuticals from Canada. This is now beginning to happen. Finally, it is like it's, God knows it's taken long enough, but the FDA just issued its first approval to Florida of all states to import directly from wholesalers in Canada. And there's a whole bunch of other states which are saying like, yeah, we would love to do that because it would save us a bunch of money. And then once the states start doing it, you know, and obviously they get reimbursed by the federal government, like this could be a huge savings. Um, as anyone who has ever filled a prescription outside the United States knows, you know, like drugs are just a lot cheaper in the rest of the world. And this is a way of beginning to arbitrage that difference in a positive way.
1: You would think that if that becomes... If more states start doing that, we would see drug prices in the U.S. just start to come down because they would have no choice, like, because the market would have changed, right?
0: One can but hope. Emily, do you have a number?
1: I wrote down so many numbers. I'm so stressed out about this, but... <laughs> <laughs> do
0: you want to do Elizabeth's number first to just make yes. sure that her number yeah. isn't one of yours?
1: Yeah, mine's, mine's
2: kind of uh, also in in keeping with the theme... It's uh three hundred and twenty-seven billion and that's dollars, and that's the amount of money spent on treating type two diabetes in the US. That's one out of every four dollars spent on medical care for chronic conditions.
0: Oh my god, insulin prices are still insane. So many people have tried to solve this insulin problem. It is out of copyright, like you should be able to make it at cost and distribute it at cost. And I do not for the life of me understand why it is still so Insanely expensive in this country.
2: Well, it's also it's not just that. This was in a story about state and local healthcare pro, uh, programs being um, spending so much money on Ozempic and GLP ones specifically because the reimbursement rate has gone up over fifty percent in the last two years for those drugs, and so state and local programs are having to pay more specifically for those, and they're they're you know they're sort of cannibalizing funds for other types of healthcare oh so that's
0: interesting this is the first I like the 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 discourse around the glp1s for a long time was the rich are getting thin by paying enormous amounts out of pocket for this but it's not clear that the insurers are going to be willing to pay for it but you're saying that like now that it there's actual real money coming out of health insurance into into these drugs. Yeah,
2: Well, they already do pay for it for people who are severely diabetic or in some cases, you know, they're having to figure out how to ration it now because it's, it's you know, if you have somebody who has type 2 and, you know, they that contributes to other problems that might be more severe in nature, do you give that person a GLP-1 versus somebody who, you uh, you know, has type one, but is managing it well. Like th- those are the kind of trade offs that people are having to make, and uh, they're just sort of resulting in more costs in that category for state and local healthcare funds.
0: Emily,
1: my number is not on topic. My That's number okay. is <laughs> my number is ninety nine. That is a percent, ninety nine percent. That is how much the cost of a forty inch TV set has decreased over the past. 25 years. In 1997, the first 40-inch plasma TV cost $22,900. Now, and then in 2005, it was about $4,000. Now, 2020, well, last year in 2023, you could get one for between $150 and $300. And I got this number from Ed Gresser at the Progressive Policy Institute who put it in an email and I thought it was fun to read about because that is a big big deflation right there. Deflation, people. And then it sent me down this rabbit hole where I was like, why, is it, why are iPhones cheaper? Like if plasma TVs so innovative, big TVs have, declo- you know, have decreased in cost 99%. Why is my iPhone still basically cost the same? And I guess it's because Apple has a monopoly on the iPhone. So I answered my own question maybe right there.
0: No, I think there are two deeper reasons for that. One is that what you're getting in today's iPhone is literally orders of magnitude better than what you got from the old That's iPhones. That's true. Like That's The iPhones true. are so much more powerful. Are so much, they look better. They take better photographs. They do just incredible whiz-bang things that were unthinkable 10 years ago. And so you, what you're getting is quality increases rather than price decreases. In contradistinction to the 40-inch TV, where you know the job of the TV is to show what's on the telly, and it did it well... In 1997 and it does it well today but there's not nearly as much room for quality increase
1: right it's just the tvs now are more integrated with streaming and the internet but that's not the same kind of innovation as we've seen in the iphone that's true okay that's fair and also apple i mean they're also good like no one gets their tv updated every two years right like apple has figured out how to improving the quality is also like how they get you to buy a new one every couple of years. You know what I mean?
0: Exactly. If they if they just decreased the price every year instead of making the quality better, then no one would buy a new phone because they right. already have a phone that does exactly what the old phone did.
1: Yeah. And there's no, there's no mechanism like that with a TV or other, most other appliances.
0: All right. I think that's it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening and sending in your emails on slatemoneyatslate.com. I have a question for you. I think next week we are going to embark upon Apple Maps discourse. Yes. <laughs> yes. I want I want you guys to write in slatemoney at com if you've used Apple Maps in the past year or so. Tell us if you think that Google Maps is still better because there's this general sort of weird consensus that Apple Maps is much better than Google now, which I think is true in the United States. But let me know what you think, and we will talk about it. Because, Emily, you are obsessed with this subject.
1: Yeah, because I used Apple Maps finally for the first time. Because I hadn't used it because of their disastrous launch. I was always like, well, it must be terrible. But it turns out.
0: Let us know if you're contrarian and you think that Google is still better. And otherwise, we'll be back on Tuesday. ...with our brand new series. This is every other Tuesday from now until the end of time. We're going to do a thing called Money Talks, which is me, or sometimes Emily, talking to someone really interesting about something really interesting. First one is going to be me talking to Marissa Meltzer, who wrote a whole book about Glossier, about the beauty industry... And there are many more to come. So that is coming up. That is the big new change to Slate Money in 2024. And other than that, so we'll be back on Tuesday with Money Talks. And then the following Saturday with a regular Slate Money. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Jared Downing and Merritt Jacobs and everyone else who helped to put the show together. And we'll see you soon.